First Chronicles chapter 22 says this, Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel. And he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps, as well as bronze and quantities beyond weighing, and cedar timbers without number. For the Sidonians and Tyrrhenians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. Then he called for Solomon and his son, and he charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You should have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, the son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, he shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now my son, the Lord is with you, so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God, as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding, that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weighing. For there is so much of it. Timber and stone, too, I have provided. To these you must add. You have abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work, the Lord be with you. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon, his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you peace on every side? For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and his people. Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God so that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God may be brought into a house built for the name of the Lord. Well, in 1907, there was a Boston inventor by the name of uh, Lawrence Lulin, and he invented a product that I'm sure each and every one of us have used. And honestly, I've never even thought of it as being an invention. It's such an uh, ordinary part of everyday life. We've actually, many of us are drinking them right now. Uh, it was the invention of the Dixie Cup. And the Dixie Cup was created for an interesting purpose that we might not expect. It was actually created for sanitary reasons. Um, in the olden days, what they would do, in, if you'd go into an office building or in a school, they'd have a, a water fountain, and there would be a spigot, and then kind of connected or below the spigot, there would be something called a tin dipper. And it was just kind of like a big you know, tin pail, had a long, um, long handle on it, and everybody would drink out of that one single bowl. They'd just fill it up. Everyone would drink out of it. And, of course, everyone would get sick. You know, one person in the school would get sick. Everyone would get sick in the school because they were all drinking out of the same cup. And so 
this inventor came along and invented this disposable cup that you could just use it once and throw it out, and it just kind of set off this revolution of what was called throwaway living. Um, and in 1955, there was an article that was put in uh, Life magazine. It was called Throwaway Living. And in that article, they showed hundreds of uh, different utensils and dishes and, and all different types of things. They were all thrown through the air. And they stated that these things would take 40 hours to wash, but there was no need to wash them because they were all disposable. You could just use them once and throw them out. And so started the disposable culture, the throwaway culture that we live in today. You know, and we live in the, in the world we live in today, there's so many things that are kind of single-use things, whether it's water bottles, whether it's going to fast food and, you know, it's bags, wrappers. We have so many things that are disposable that we just use once and we throw out. And it's not just utensils or dishes, it also comes with products as well. Uh, manufacturers actually develop things to fail. It's called planned obsolescence. And so it, this can kind of take a number of different forms. One form is that it's just kind of designed in a way so that eventually it will fail so that people will have to buy more. Or you have things like a cell phone. that You know, the manufacturer makes it super hard to fix. I mean, how hard would it be to have just a little, um, little slot on the back where you could change the battery? But they don't do that. So you get to maybe you have a phone two or three years, the battery starts to drain, and you think to yourself, well, I could get a battery replaced for a hundred or more dollars, but my, you know, maybe it's, it's time for getting an upgrade, so I might as well just get a new phone because I'll have to spend all this money on the battery anyways. Of course, they plan it that way so that you'll want to buy a new one. And manufacturers do that in so many different ways where it's very difficult to fix things that shouldn't be difficult to fix because the idea is just throw it out and buy a new one. We live in a disposable culture, and unfortunately, that's kind of influenced relationships as well. Um, marriages often are, are thought of as disposable, thought of as, you know, temporary. Friendships are often temporary as maybe a change in job, a change in life circumstance, uh, maybe a relocation just kind of tears those relational bonds apart. And so I think we have gotten to a place in our culture where we kind of expect things not to be reliable. You know, you think about, you know, the reliability. You don't expect things to last like they used to. Uh, for example, you know, years ago, people used to go to a cobbler if their shoes broke. Most of us don't do that. If our shoes break, we just go and buy a pair of new ones. So we, you know, we buy things, we expect them to fail. We expect them not to be reliable. We don't expect them to last uh, the test of time. I, each year I have to buy a new pair of sandals, it seems. Because, you know, they last about one year and then I got to throw them out, get a new one each year. You know, we live, live in that kind of culture. It influences relationships. And we kind of, you know, we hope that relationships last, last but kind of in the back of our minds we have this kind of expectation that maybe they're not going to last. And I think it also imp impacts our relationship with God as well. I think sometimes we kind of living in this disposable, throwaway culture where we expect things to not be reliable, we have trouble believing that our God is faithful and reliable. And it's especially difficult for many of us. Many of us have never seen kind of pictures of faithfulness or reliability. Now, some of us have. Some of us have grown up and seen, you know, relationships of faithfulness. Maybe our parents or grandparents were faithful to one another and faithful to the Lord. 
And some of us have those examples, but many of us don't. Many of us don't have those examples of faithfulness. And so we look at our lives and we look at kind of the disposable nature of culture. And we kind of, even if we say we believe that God is faithful, we believe that he's reliable. In the back of our minds, we're kind of wondering if he's going to really come through for us. We're wondering if he's going to really fail us in the end. And so we have that struggle. We live in a culture where nothing is reliable, and so we have trouble sometimes, I think, believing that God is faithful, that God is reliable. And I believe that this passage that we just read is really about the faithfulness of God and about his reliability to his people. You remember Israel's history. Uh, Israel uh, was in slavery in Egypt. Moses, Moses led them out of slavery, and God did r- remarkable wonders in leading them out of slavery, and, and it was kind of taking them to the land of milk and honey, the land, the promised land. And as he t- took them out, there were so many different obstacles that they faced. Most of all, um, they were, you know, the biggest obstacle was their own sin and their own foolishness in following after other gods. But they get on kind of the precipice of the promised land, and they look into the land that God has promised to them, and there's giants in the land. I mean, there's this race of giants, these really strong warriors, and yet God has promised them this land and promised that they're going to have rest in this land, that they're going to have peace. And it might have seemed like a pipe dream at one point as they're standing uh, ready to go into the promised land. There's all these strong armies before them, and yet God promises they're going to have peace. And we see in this passage that that promise is going to be fulfilled. That there's a time when Israel, there's not going to be any serious threats to their sovereignty for a short time. It's the promise that was given in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 10 to 11. And so in that passage, Deuteronomy chapter 12, it was was promised and it was um, God commanded the people, when that time of rest comes, when you have rest from your enemies, that's going to be the time when you build a more permanent temple for my name, to worship me. And so that time has come. The Israelites probably had trouble believing that, and yet the time has come here. And we see something quite interesting in verse 2. We see uh, David says that he gathers the resident aliens to help prepare the materials for the temple. Now what's interesting about that is looking at who these resident aliens were, they were almost all, if not all, Canaanites. And so we see the promise of God fulfilled where God promised he's going to bring them into the promised land, that they're going to have peace from their enemies. And we see in this passage that he's brought, they're brought into the land, they're going to have peace from their enemies, and their enemies, the Canaanites, are actually going to help them build a temple to worship the Lord. It's an incredible demonstration of the faithfulness of God and the reliability of God to come through for his promises. And we see in this passage just the faithfulness of God again and again and again. And we see a few other things about the faithfulness of God. We see first that God is faithful even when we're not. God is faithful even when we're not. So David tells his son Solomon that he had desired to build a temple for the Lord. And yet the Lord told him that he couldn't build a temple for for the Lord. And the reason that he said he couldn't build a temple for the Lord was because he was a warrior and he was someone who had shed blood. Now, some interpreters, when they look at this passage, you know, they think of it as, okay, David was just, you know, he was a warrior. He was a man who, you know, he defeated Goliath. He engaged in a number of different battles. And so he was just a man, a, a soldier, a warrior. Now, I think there may be more than that. 
And, and the reason I think there may be more than that is because these battles that were, you know, he carried out were mostly sanctioned by God. And, and there's a specific term that's used in here when it's talking about shedding blood. That term is never used in the context of warfare. It's never used in the context of killing and warfare. It's used in the context of unjust killing, kind of like murdering. For example, when you think about uh, so, you know, someone who's in the military, and maybe someone in the military has maybe killed another person or maybe killed dozens or hundreds of people. Now, you don't think about that person as being a murderer, right? They're not a murderer. They're, they're just a soldier. They're doing their job. They're doing their duty. They may have killed people. It's not, it's not, they're not a murderer. A murderer is someone who breaks into someone else's house and, and shoots them. That, that's a murderer. And so the technical term that's used here, it's never used in the context of just simply warfare. It's used in the context of unjust killings, like a murder. So in essence, I think what he's saying is David's a murderer. So if he's not just talking about his warfare, of you know, when he waged war on behalf of God, what was he talking about? He probably was talking about the time, maybe even multiple times, but first of all, the time with Uriah, where he had Uriah killed. He wanted Bathsheba, Uriah's. Um, uh, he wanted Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and uh, he had Uriah killed because of that. And we see in the last passage that we looked at uh, last week, we looked at how David sinned, and then as a result, seventy thousand people died. We see also in First Samuel chapter sixteen, a man named Shemaiah was who was from the house of Saul. He came up to David and he accused him of some things, and one of the things he accused him of was being a murderer and a man of blood. And so we see just a couple examples in the scripture. There are probably other cases as well where David unjustly killed someone, where he was a murderer. And I don't think it was just his warfare, just you know, his, his, the fact that he was a king, because God had sanctioned those things. But there was more to that, that he was a murderer. He had unjustly killed other people. And, and in the scripture, kind of the punishment for One's for shedding someone else's blood is that your blood would be shed. That if you kill someone else, that the punishment is that you would be put to death. And so the fact that God hasn't given up on him, the fact that God has put his son on the throne, that he's still choosing to use David, is a testament to God's grace. A testimony to God's faithfulness. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences. He doesn't get to see the glory of building this temple. He doesn't get to see that, but... God is still faithful to his promise to him, despite his sin. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13 says this, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Romans 5, 7 to 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise the Lord for the hope of the gospel. Praise the Lord for his grace. See, where David failed, Christ succeeded. David shed the blood of innocence, but Jesus shed his own blood so that we could have life. And so we see the faithless, the faithful shed his blood for the faithless in Christ so that we might have life. So this passage reminds us that God is faithful even when we're not. Even when we fail, he's faithful. Doesn't change his grace. 
We see, second, that God's faithfulness is different to each one of us. God's faithfulness is different to each one of us. We see something interesting in that David gives Solomon the following encouragement. He says, be strong and courageous. Fear not, do not be dismayed. Those words might sound familiar to you, and that's because it's not the first time that those words were used. They were actually used back in the story with Joshua. Moses is about to die, or actually he's just died, and Joshua is on the precipice of entering into the promised land. There's enemies before him, and he's uh, encouraged, be strong and courageous. Do not be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. The same thing that is promised to, um, to Solomon in this passage, the same encouragement that's given to him. And so we see these two different people, Joshua and Solomon, they're facing completely different challenges. And it's a different challenge that David had faced as well. Now, you think about it kind of from Solomon's perspective. Now, Solomon has kind of has a heritage of warfare. I mean, his dad, David, is the giant slayer. I mean, you can imagine stories that were told of, about all of David's exploits and how he defeated the, the, the Goliath, how he defeated all these enemies. And Solomon had heard those stories, I'm sure. Imagine that maybe David even told him himself. I mean, this is just pure speculation, but I could imagine him saying, you know, I, faced, I saw this giant, his name is Goliath, he was so strong, he was so mighty, and I was terrified, but I kept telling myself, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, the Lord is with me. But Solomon had that history of warfare in his family. David, and then you go back to the conquest of Joshua, the judges. And so it's all about been, uh, been all about possessing the land of Canaan, about subduing the enemies of the land. And now he's called to something else. He's not called to possess and, and subdue the nations anymore. He's called to build a temple. But he's given the same promise. The Lord's going to be with him. He's given the same encouragement, be strong and be courageous. And I think this, what this shows us is that God calls us to different things, but he's always faithful to each and every one of us. He calls us to different things, but he's always faithful. Some of us, God says, be strong and be courageous as he calls us to lead our families as stay-at-home parents. Some of us, God says, be strong and courageous as he calls us to excellence in our workplace and to share our faith, and to share God's love with those around us. Some of us, God says, be strong and courageous as we serve the poor and the orphan and leverage our time and our resources in our retirement. Some of us, God says, be strong and courageous as he calls us to love the unlovable. Some of us, God says, be strong and courageous as he calls us to leave all that we have and sell it and go, and go to a foreign country and preach the gospel. God has different callings for each and every one of us. He wasn't calling David to be Solomon. He wasn't calling Solomon to be David. It would be sinful for Solomon to become a man of war and not build this temple. That was his task, building the temple. It may not have seemed as scary or as great as defeating Goliath and defeating these Canaanites, but that was what his calling was, to build the temple of the Lord. And even that was an incredible undertaking and something that he would have to rely on the Lord for each and every day. God's faithfulness looks different to each and every one of us, and he's not calling us to be someone else. 
He's calling us to be the person that God has made us to be, to leverage the time, the resources, the opportunities that we have for his glory. We run into trouble when we try to be someone else. There's a man who uh, wanted to be a conductor, and the problem was he was not a great conductor. He had a very interesting style. Uh, for example, when you know, it was kind of a low part uh, of, the, of the song, he would crouch down really low to the ground, and then when it was a high part, he would jump off, off of his feet, and he had trouble keeping time. There was one time when he was you know, signaled for the orchestra to, to, to come on at, at one point, and um, he was just way off, and they had no idea what he was doing. Uh, one time he was trying to lead a piano concerto, and he was trying to conduct from the piano. And he got up, and he knocked over a bunch of candles. He knocked over a choir boy. He was just a terrible conductor. It got to a point when uh, the orchestra stopped listening to him. They, they weren't even looking at him anymore. They were listening to, looking to the lead violinist because he was kind of more on, on, on time and in, in tune with what was happening with the song. That conductor's name was Ludwig van Beethoven. He was a terrible conductor, but one of the greatest composers ever to compose. He was trying to do something that he wasn't made to do. And when we do that too, we're going to encounter difficulty. We don't have to be someone that we're not. And God calls us to different things, but he always is faithful to each and every one of us in the things he calls us to final thing we see about God's faithfulness is that God's faithfulness is demonstrated through God's people past and present. God's faithfulness is demonstrated through God's people past and present. You think about Solomon, and from his standpoint, the faithfulness of God is demonstrated in a number of things, but preeminently it's demonstrated in his father, the spiritual heritage that David had given him. And the fact that David is doing a lot of the legwork for him, we see in this passage, he's gathering the stone cutters, he's gathering all these raw materials for Solomon to be able to use to build a temple. And so we see that kind of spiritual heritage that he has as David kind of prepares the way for him to do what God has called him to do. We see also that the task that God is calling Solomon to do, he's not calling him to do it by himself. Uh, we see that in place are a number of workmen, stonecutters, it says masons, carpenters, all kinds of craftsmen. And, and David commands all these other leaders to, to help him in this task. And so we see God's faithfulness is present with him in the fact that God provided the spiritual heritage in David, that David was preparing the way, and God is bringing people to help him in that task. And I think as believers in Christ, God doesn't call us to do this life alone. He doesn't call us to do this mission uh, of reaching the nations alone. He calls us to do it together. And all of us stand kind of on the, soldier, uh, on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. All of us are here because somebody maybe showed the love of Christ to us. Somebody invited us. Somebody cared about us enough to listen to us. All of us are here because somebody else was faithful to their mission. And as we carry out the, the missions that God calls us to, he doesn't call us to do life alone. He gives us his church, the body of Christ, to encourage us, to strengthen us. And where we're, we're weak, maybe somebody else in the body of Christ is strong. Where we're strong, maybe somebody else is weak. And so God puts us together in the body of Christ to carry out his mission together, not alone. God comforts us through other people. 
There's a couple by the name of James and Jill uh, Kilabarta from Minnesota, and they discovered God's faithfulness to them in a very interesting and tragic way. Looking forward to the birth of their first son, the couple learned during the pregnancy that this baby had a genetic problem, probably only live a few hours after her birth. But they put people around themselves to encourage them. They turned to a unique prenatal hospice program to help guide them through this crisis. The children's hospitals and clinics of Minnesota and Minneapolis provided them direction and stood by them through this difficult time. One of the nurses named Rachel Boucher set up special classes on childbirth education. She checked on them frequently, visiting them in the waiting room, caring for their families, arranged for them to meet a specialist. Peter Lund, the hospice chaplain, built a bridge of communication with the parents. He called on them in their home. He made them think a great deal about God's role. The daughter lived uh, great, more than two months. But kind of commenting and kind of reflecting on this, spirit, uh, on this experience, uh, the mother Jill said this. She said, when we were expecting Elena, people would say, you're in our prayers. But people were praying to make it all better for us. And then this, she opened her heart and said this, we weren't asking, make it all better. God doesn't come down and touch you to heal you. He sends people to be with you. David Wilkerson puts it this way, our faith is not meant to get us out of a hard place or change our painful condition. Rather, it's meant to reveal God's faithfulness to us in the midst of our dire situation. Sometimes I think it's interesting how, you know, maybe we're facing a difficult time and and of course, we pray God change the circumstance. You know, that's often our, our first prayer, and that's a good prayer. It's not a bad thing to pray. Sometimes God says no, and then in those moments, we kind of question, God, where are you? Where's your faithfulness? You say you're reliable. You'll say, you say you're there for me. Where's your faithfulness? And sometimes I think we're only looking for something supernatural. We're looking for a, for a light from heaven. We're looking for a miraculous healing. But oftentimes, I think God sends us an answer that's more ordinary. He sends us people to encourage us and strengthen us, people to uplift us, people to hold us up when we can't hold ourselves up. We serve a faithful God, and the way that God often demonstrates His faithfulness is through other people who are there for us when we need Him. So let's not discount that. Let's not forget the fact that God's people demonstrate God's faithfulness. So we see three things about God's faithfulness. God is faithful even when we're not. God's faithfulness looks different to each one of us. And God's faithfulness is demonstrated through God's people, past and present. One afternoon, there's a man named Dr. Hugh Litchfield. He was walking through Norfolk, Norfolk General Hospital. He heard his name called. A man comes up to him and says, Do you remember me? This man had been to his church. Dr. Litchfield was a, a pastor. He had been to his church 10 years prior. He got into a lot of different trouble with uh, tax evasion, and that kind of led him to alcoholism and kind of put a lot, big strain on his marriage and his relationship with his children. And he came to that church in a very difficult spot. He was really in desperation. Litchfield explains the interaction with this man uh, in his book, Visualizing the Sermon, this way. He says, he then said to me in that lobby, I want to thank you. For what? He said. 
One Sunday, you preached a sermon about taking responsibility for your lives, not to blame what, uh, what we become on somebody else. God used that sermon to speak to me. That afternoon, I got down on my knees and prayed to God and promised to take responsibility for my life. With God's help, I did. Since that time, life has been great. I got out of trouble with the IRS. I became uh, the master over the bottle. My marriage is better than ever. I want to thank you. Litchfield says this, as he left me standing there, I was overwhelmed by what he had told me. When I went back to the office, I dug down into my sermon files to get out that sermon that had meant so much to him. Early in my ministry, on Monday morning, I would jot down a phrase or two at the top of my sermon manuscript as to how I felt the sermon had gone on Sunday. For that sermon that he was speaking of, I glanced at what I had written on that day. He had written this, Dead in the water, no one listened. A waste of time. As a pastor, I've had that same experience. There'll be some times where I feel like my message really stunk. Like it was the worst ever. And then people will come up to me afterwards and be like, I really, really need to hear that. God just spoke to me in an incredible way. And and the, the opposite is also true. There's other times where I feel like this message was awesome. And I'm so excited about it. And like, it just feels like nobody even listened. I'm like, well, what? But it's the faithfulness of God. We're just open. We're just willing to do what God calls to do. And God is the one who is faithful. God is faithful to each and every one of us as believers. He calls us to do different things. Whether we're like Joshua, who was called to conquer, or like David, who was called to take down giants, or like Solomon, who was called to build. Called to build. There's one thing that's the same. God is faithful. God is faithful to each and every one of us in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you that you're faithful even when we're faithless. We thank you that you didn't wait for us to turn around before you came to the earth to die on the cross for us. Your blood was shed, the innocent, for the broken, for the sinner. Lord, we thank you for your incredible grace for us. We thank you that you're faithful to us no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. No matter what calling you place in our lives, there's one thing that we know remains the same, that you're faithful. We thank you that you bring people into our lives, that your faithfulness is often demonstrated through people who have gone before us and prepared the way, and people who are with us right now who encourage us and strengthen us along the way. In the midst of a culture that's broken, in the midst of a culture where there's not much we can rely on anymore, help us to believe, help us to know in the depths of our heart that you are faithful, that you're reliable. There's no depths to your love. There's nothing that could separate us from your great grace. Help us to believe that with all of our hearts today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.